Okay. <laughs> if you if you could see the behind the scenes of what just happened, it's on a security camera somewhere. <laughs> I had put my iced coffee in a mug on the table, and Marie was moving it over, and it tipped over. So, uh, yeah, hey, we're live and stuff like that happens, and there's nothing you can do about it. So we're just gonna go with it. Um, I don't think my I don't think my Bible got wet, which is great because uh, I can still use that. And um, my iPad's over there too. So um, let me get the last sip of this. <laughs> hey, man, this is what we do, right? Uh, I don't have anything to put anything on anymore, which is great. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna do that, and I'm gonna wing it. Uh, hey, listen, thank you guys so much for joining us. Thank you for allowing me the opportunity uh, to be here and to deliver the word. And Thomas is coming in with a rag. John Allen, don't, don't, uh, you know, don't get worried. We're going to clean it up. Okay. This is, uh, this is the kind of things that happen when John's not here. We, you know, when the guy's away, we just mess around. Um, (laughs) so anyway, deep breath, let's get into it. All right. We just came out of this series called know God, find hope, live free, do good. And if you have never heard of that, then this is either your first time coming onto this stream, or you're not paying attention to anything we're doing, because this is something that our church is in this. It's our core, right? It's our mission. It's our soul. It's our value. This is what we do. We are designed to know God, find hope, live free, do good. And uh, it's so important to us that we say it before uh, every service. It's in all the host comments. We plug it whenever we can in the service. Uh, We email about it. We text about it. You know, our groups are designed around No God, Find Hope, Live. We want to put that in your brain, all right? We want you not even to think about it. It's just something that you do. We go through it so much. But the thing about that is it's not a cycle. I mean, it is a cycle. Sorry, I'm just, I'm all over the place right now. I'm going to settle down. It's a cycle, right? It's not you just know God, find hope, live free, and then you do good one time. You're like, good, I'm set, you know? Know God, uh, have a relationship with Him, and then you have hope of a future, right? You have a future here and future later on. And you're free of those chains of that sin because God paid that price. Jesus paid for that price on the cross. And then you have the, um, you want to do good. Yeah, I'm sorry. I have to calm down. I am. I had all this ready to go. I was ready to, oh, thanks. This will make it better, right? Thanks, Thomas. Thomas, behind, behind the seas boy. All right. Now. Clean table, take a deep breath. Bible's here, it didn't get, we're good. All right, everybody at home, I'm sure it, you're cracking up. That's good, that's uh, that's what I'm here for. Like I said, I'm an embarrassment to my wife all the time. You're my family too, I'll just embarrass myself in front of you guys too, all right? So it is a cycle, right? It doesn't stop at do good and then we just live our life happily ever after. The more, do, the more good we do, the more we know God. The more hope we have, the more freedom we have, right? Then the more good we do. And here's what happens. When everybody in the church gets on this cycle of know God, find hope, live free, do good, and you all buy in, and we're all doing all this stuff together, and we're knowing God together, we're learning about Him, we have hope together, we're all free, we feel that. And then we start doing good. It just, you can call it a ripple effect, you can call it a waterfall, you can call it a river, you can call it whatever you want. But what happens is we all get in the cycle together and we just start moving and we change the lives of this community. First, by changing our lives of our family inside the church. And then we just explode and change everybody's life. And that's what Carolina Family Church is all about. It's about changing the lives of the community. We are designed to do that, not to be internal, to go out of the church. All right. And that's what leads us to this next series called Hungry. And that's what we're going to be doing for the next uh, weeks before we come back live on our four-year anniversary, by the way. So exciting. Um, we're going to be in this series called Hungry. And now I'm going to tell you, if I, if I am already not excited enough, I'm going to apologize because I am going to get a little heated. I'm going to get a little, uh, my voice is going to come up a little bit, okay? I, I'm going to get a little bit passionate about this because this is something that's very near and dear to my heart, this series called Hungry. And 
It's so much that way that I have been all over the place this week. I have not been able to focus. I have not been able to really study because every time I'm thinking about something, something else comes in my head because I have so many thoughts on this series. It is very important to me personally and to our church specifically. Because let me show you what's, what's happening with this hunger. A lot of churches in, especially in American culture, right? They get involved in themselves. And they know, the, they know God, and they, they have hope, and they live free, and maybe they're doing good, but somewhere along the line, they get stuck in that cycle, and it stops repeating, okay? And it, it turns into a, a Sunday-only thing where we compartmentalize God, or we really just bring Him in on Sunday, so it's, a, it's more of a show. It's entertainment, right? That was a great service. There was lights, and there was TVs, and it was all that kind of stuff. And then we leave and go home during the week and we don't do anything. We come back on Sunday and another great show, another great teaching, uh, another great high five and seeing everybody, getting everybody hugs. Then we go home and we don't live that lifestyle out because we got stuck in the cycle and somewhere we stop doing good. And this is what happens, right? Churches are dying because they're not hungry. Churches are dying because just generally speaking, if John... And, and me and the leaders, if we're the only people telling anybody about God on a Sunday, we're not reaching that many unsaved people. We're not delivering that message to people that need it because there's not that many people walking off the street that come into the service. The majority of the people in the service on a Sunday are like you and me. So just preaching to the choir. That's why most of our services aren't salvation messages, although we do give the opportunity, but most of them are designed to build us up and to teach us so that we can go out during the week and do the work. And a lot of churches aren't doing that, and the people aren't doing that, and they're dying because of it. John says a lot of times if we're not spiraling up, we're spiraling down. If you're not moving forward, if you don't have momentum going forward, then you're going backwards. So this is a it's important to everybody, but it means something specifically to me because I've been in these churches. I've been a part of these churches. It's all about the Sunday service, and there's not enough focus on what we do individually outside of the church during the week. Because here's the deal. We are all designed with a place in our heart for this Holy Spirit, for Jesus to live. We're designed for it. And we're born, we don't have it. There's a void there. And if you never, ever experience knowing God, if you never get that whole filled with the, with the Holy Spirit, someone who guides you and leads you throughout the day and gives you a hunger to give that to somebody else, then you start filling it with crap. You start trying to find other things to make that void go away. And filling it with other things never gives you uh, the satisfaction that the Holy Spirit is because that's where He belongs. So we just spiral down. And if there's nobody during the week, nobody in the life talking to these people and, and witnessing to them and being Jesus to them in an everyday normal situation, they never get the opportunity to fill that void with the Holy Spirit because you're never showing it to them. And listen, church to me, is it's not all about numbers, all right? I don't, I don't go by that. I'm not looking for salvation numbers. That's not what drives me. What drives me is changing people's lives. And what, what that is about is us individually during the week reaching people that normally wouldn't get reached inside our church and then get them into a church that I don't know why they go anywhere else because ours is the best, but get them into a body that believes in know God, find hope, live free, do good. So they get on that cycle and they start moving forward with everybody else. And you see what happens. They reach somebody and they reach somebody and they reach somebody and they reach somebody. And then all of a sudden, we're all moving forward together. That is the goal. We all have this spiritual, if you're in this church and you know God, you have this void that's been filled by the Holy Spirit. And it's hungry to share that with somebody else. And our really, our gift, the best thing that we can do in this life is saving someone else's life from hell. Introducing that person to the family of God, to a bigger family than they ever had, that they've ever experienced in their life. That is something that we have the opportunity to do, and it should be our number one priority. Moving the kingdom of God further. And I know that this can be really scary, okay? It can be uncomfortable. We're going to talk a lot about being uncomfortable today. 
It can be very uncomfortable to share uh, something with somebody who may not be responsive to it. And I understand that more than you think, because I know it looks like I can just get in front of people. It is a, it maybe is a gift I have. I don't know. It's probably the, more the fact that I just don't care what you think about me because I'll just get in front of anybody and start talking. I'll go up to anybody and start talking. I don't really care. But I wasn't always that way, right? I had it kind of drilled out of me. In school, they had some specific things that they would do to us to kind of make us go way past this. So when we came back, we'd be comfortable with it, all right? I'm going to share a little bit of behind the scenes with what I've had to go through. And we can see if what you have to do talking to somebody on an individual level is near as scary as what I've had to do. Because I can make you do this, and I guarantee you half of you wouldn't do it. Uh, in school, we had this thing called the quad, right? I went to a university for a seminary, and it was it was a large school. It had a lot of other things going on besides just the theology department, right? We had a You could go be a doctor, you could be a teacher, you could do a lot of stuff. So there was a lot of other people that weren't in our department. And it was a large school, so in the middle there was about a half a football field size octagon. And one of the things they would make us do is stand on one side of the octagon with the entire program, theology program, on the other side, which was, I don't know, it was under 1,000 people, but you get it. And we would take turns, right? We would take turns. We had to preach from the other side of the octagon for about 15 minutes all the way across the other side. They had to be able to hear our voice without a speaker, without anything, and we had to do it without shouting, right? It was just a a thing to make us feel more comfortable if we ever were in a situation where we were talking to a bunch of people and we had no microphone, right? We had to elevate our voice without shouting so they could clearly hear us in case something like that ever happened. But what else is happening behind the scenes is we're in the quad, right? This is where everybody's coming to picnic, to study, to lay out on towels, to get sun, to do whatever. So there's all these other people who could care less about what I'm talking about, what I'm doing, sitting in between me and all these people. So they don't know what's going on. They just showed up to do something else. So that I am interrupting them, and I'm preaching, right? I am almost shouting across the quad. But, and as uncomfortable as that was for me, what I did not know is what was next because it is just not my style. It's just not something I like to do. They put us in small groups, put us in vans, drove us to parts of town that, needless to say, we're not people somewhere that they would want to hear somebody shouting at them uh, out of the Bible, right? And they would let, make us get out, stand on the street, and basically, top of our lungs, give a message to anybody who was walking by. And that is the most uncomfortable thing I have ever done, because that is not me. I am not the shouter on the corner of the street. Uh, I'm more one-on-one -on -one showing people love by hugging them and showing them that I have Jesus in my heart and doing something for them. I am not the uh, yelling at someone on the street corner kind of guy, right? And it is scary, but it's a grade, and I had to do it to pass, right? So I did it, and I vowed to never do it again and never make anybody else do it. But it made me uncomfortable, and all that being said is it brought me to a situation where I then was so uncomfortable that I was now more comfortable just walking up to someone and starting to talk to them, having a conversation with them uh, about God or about anything. It just, it made me a little looser around people, right? It made me more of a social butterfly, should you say. Um, and I understand still, though, how uncomfortable it can be to just share the gospel or share Jesus or share your experience with somebody else. And uh, during this series called Hungry, we're going to work on that, right? We're going to show you instances in the Bible where someone one-on-one -on -one talked to somebody else. We're going we're gonna to see what that person was like, what their backgrounds were, what their knowledge was, what the knowledge of the Bible was, what they had in general in their mind about Jesus, and how uh, they were interacted with and what ignited a spiritual hunger inside of them, right? How specifically this type of person was related to, to help them further their spiritual, to get them on the know God, find hope, live free, do good cycle. All right, and we looked all through the, listen, we had, I mean, we looked all through this to, to try to find it, and we came up with, uh, you know, really, a really tough thing to do is we're going to look at Jesus, okay? I know that's the that's low-hanging fruit there, but guess what? He did it better than anybody, so I don't have to go very far outside of his life to find someone who did it correctly because he did it specifically to show us how to do it, so that's what we're going to do.
And this is my favorite style of preaching, right? I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read a story. I get to read a story out of the Bible about Jesus interacting with someone, and then we're going to go back and break it down a little bit and see what we can learn uh, out of this interaction, all right? Um, this is where I was going to take a drink of coffee and like give you guys an opportunity, but I don't have coffee anymore, obviously, so we're all together. Going to turn to John 4. That is where we're going to be uh, reading from today. And as John Allen would say, trying to channel him a little bit, it's right here. Uh, it's also page 1487, if anybody has my Bible. And um, I'll give you a second to get there and collect my thoughts here real quick. And as my southern accent uh, will show you, I did go to school. I did learn how to read and write, but it does not come across real well when I read on camera because I sound like a um, like I'm from North Carolina, which I should. And all you guys will just bear along with me, all right? So in verse, in chapter 4, verse number 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made, a, made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed against Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that, jo that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, of who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and that well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well, and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is a place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know we worship for salvation. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I'm just going to pray real quick after we read that, uh, that God opens our hearts to what he wants to show us out of here. Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity. Um, I pray that you would settle my mind and my spirit, that you would let me focus on the word and that um, you would allow us to see how to relate to others, to bring them closer to you and, and to give them uh, what you desire, which is the Holy Spirit to live in all of us. I pray that you would uh, be with my words and um, just thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for my life. Thank you for our church family uh, and their grace. And we love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. There's a lot going on. That's 26 verses. All right. Uh, and obviously I can't break everything down. I, you could preach on this message, this sermon, this group of scripture for probably um, a month and not get everything right. So I'm going to skip over some things. I'm not going to tell you everything that's going on, but I'm going to tell you things that are relevant and important to what this series is, which is hungry, okay, which is how Jesus is interacting with this woman. And uh, we're just going to dive right in, right? We're going to go back and start reading on them uh, at verse one, and I'm going to stop and start and break some things down for you, and we're going to learn some stuff, all right? So, verse 1, 
Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made him baptize more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed against Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. All right, I need to give you, I'm not going to give you all of it. All right, I need to give you a little context. Context is important anytime you're reading scripture. If you don't know why it's written, where it's written, how it's written, you won't know what it means. All right, so I need to give you a little bit of background about what's happening uh, right in those verses. So historically, obviously, I can't do everything. There's a lot of years in there, but right after King Solomon, um, it split up into a northern and southern kingdom of Israel, and uh, there was some really bad stuff going on, right? They were kind of doing things God didn't want them to do, so they got conquered. God let them be conquered to you know, teach them some lessons. Syrians came in on the northern kingdom. Babylonians came in on the southern kingdom. And what happened in the northern kingdom is some of the, the Jews were left behind, like there was a remnant. And the Syrians brought in, they were a mixed culture. They had conquered lots of land, and every time they just intermingled the people, and uh, they would intermingle their how the, what they believed in, their gods, their teachings, all that stuff. So you get an inter, intermingling of Jews with the Assyrians uh, in the northern kingdom. And then the Babylonians let the Jews that were in the southern kingdom that were in exile come back. So they come back into the city of Jerusalem, and they, they still have their beliefs, uh, what they consider pure, right, true. So they're, uh, they're more hardcore Jews, to say, right? So they have end up having a problem with the Jews in the northern kingdom because they've intermingled and they're interracial. The racism is not a new thing, all right? It's been around for a long time. And um, what happened was, what had happened was, they, no, they didn't want to have anything to do with them, the Samaritans, okay? They would go three days out of their way to not have to go through Samaria. They didn't even want to go through the country. They didn't want to walk through it. Isn't it funny how far out of the way we'll go to not be uncomfortable, right? I was uh, thinking about this message on my way home. I worked this past weekend in Atlanta, and uh, I hate traffic. I'm just going to tell you. A lot of people like listening to podcasts and all that kind of stuff, uh, and they'll take the time you know, just to sit there and chill. It is not a good thing for me. It, I, I'm just too fidgety. I can't stand it. And um, normally, when I come up on a traffic jam, which I did in Spartanburg, coming through Spartanburg where they're doing all that construction. There was a wreck in the middle of two lanes that stopped traffic. And my phone popped up and said, hey, there's a 30-minute slowdown. Uh, and it didn't give me any other options. A lot of times it will redirect you, right? It'll say, well, if you you know go this way, but it didn't because there was no faster way. So I'm being the smart guy, uh, went to get some gas, before I ever got there, I started looking at my phone and seeing how I could get around it because I just don't want to sit still. I'd rather go a little bit more out of my way than be uncomfortable, right? And traffic makes me very uncomfortable. So I found another route. And what actually happened was that that route made me an hour and a half slower than I would have been had I just sat in the traffic. But I didn't care because I was still moving. I didn't care about the time, which normally I would, because it was a travel day for me. And I just hate sitting in traffic so much that I will go an hour more outside of my way to not have to deal with it. And that's what's happening here with the Jews and the Samaritans. They don't like each other so much that they will go outside of their way, three days outside of their way, to get on the other side of Samaria without going through it. So at the end of that, it said, what was it in... Um, but it says Jesus needed to go to Samaria, all right? So here's a somebody that should not have been going to Samaria because normally they didn't go through there, going to Samaria. So he has a reason for it. There's a reason why he's getting there, all right? And we see that coming up. Let's pick up in verse 5. So he came to the city of Samaria, which is called Sakar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. which he gave to his son, Joseph. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. 
And uh, you know what's funny? Still, I've got coffee on my screen, so it's <laughs> it's uh it's sliding around on me, which is fine. I can uh I can make do with all the stuff. I'm just gonna uh push some buttons here. It's gonna be good. All right. So what we found is that I could have been a very good friend of the disciples. That's what we found in that couple of verses. The disciples like to eat. They do. They party. They like to eat food. I enjoy eating food. Uh, it's one of the best parts of my day, if you can't tell by the COVID pounds that I've put on, which I'm hiding very graciously with my hair and my beard. When that decides to come off, I will be afraid of who the person is underneath it. But they like to eat. So they've traveled about six hours, okay? And in that time, they started counting hours from when the sun came up. So the sixth hour would be about noon. So that'd be about right. They came into Samaria about the time they wanted to eat. And Jesus didn't go with them because he had something else to do. And he sat down at the well. And the Samaritan woman came up and he said, give me a drink. Now there's lots of stuff going on here, all right? Jesus shouldn't have been there and he shouldn't have been talking to a woman because that's not something they did back then, especially not a Samaritan woman. And he sits down and she shows up and says, give me a drink. Now, there's a couple of things we can get from this woman because of the time frame that she is there. She would not have normally come by herself at lunchtime. There's a reason why she's doing that too. We can gather some things about her, uh, maybe her social status that we see a lot of later on because Jesus mentions it. But she is hiding, right? She is not, she would normally come with a group of ladies in the morning or a group of ladies in the evening. She is not doing that because she doesn't want to be in an uncomfortable place. She, something about her lifestyle is uh, maybe not up to par. Maybe it's not as good as it should be. Anyway, she's not hanging out with the ladies of the town. Maybe to hide from something, maybe to be uncomfortable. We don't know. We'll find that out a little bit later. But that's what's going on. Jesus is sat down at the well. His disciples are gone, right? They went to get something to eat, some food. He sat down. This lady walks up who he shouldn't have been talking to in a place he shouldn't have been in the first place. And he says, give me a drink. Let's see what happens next. In verse 9, Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is that you, being a Jew, Ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now Jesus is, is piquing her interest just by talking to her, right? Because he normally wouldn't have had a conversation with her. She shouldn't have been there at the time of day she's there. He shouldn't have been there at the time of day he's there at all. Nor should he have spoken to her. So he's piquing her interest just by talking to her. He's initiating a conversation. That's all he had to do. And then he says something about living water. Which she has no idea what he's talking about at this moment. This is the first initiation of that no God, live free, uh, no God, find hope, live free, do good cycle living water. He's trying to introduce that to her. And she has no idea what he's talking about, right? So we see in verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then, where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. She's still in the physical, right? She doesn't understand what he's talking about. She still thinks about, he's talking about some kind of water that she's going to get. That would mean she doesn't have to come there anymore. And this is probably a big deal for her because of being uncomfortable, being something about her lifestyle that makes her kind of an outcast. 
She would no longer be ashamed. She wouldn't have to come to the water fountain anymore. Jesus is offering her internal life. He's offering her something different, and she still doesn't get it. She's still thinking in the physical. She doesn't understand the spiritual. He's trying to introduce to her a living cycle, and she doesn't get it, which would be natural because she doesn't have a clue what he's talking about. And if I had never heard any of this stuff and Jesus sat beside of me and started talking about living water that never ran out, and you know, I would probably be a little confused too. But Jesus is so smooth. He's so subtle. He knows who she he know, already knows who she is, right? He knows her background. He knows how she lives. He doesn't call her out, doesn't judge her, doesn't say anything about it. He just sits down and starts talking to her. Starts opening up about who he is and what he can do for her. And we see in verse 19, oh, I'm sorry, verse 16, Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. <laughs> I love, I love, I just wish I could hear Jesus' personality. I wish I knew how he said these things because he knows what this lady, what this lady's life is like. And he just shows up, casually sits down, says, hey, give me something to drink. Starts opening up a conversation. And then Jesus comes in and says, hey, where's your husband? Guess what? He's asking a conversation. He's asking her to reveal something about herself so that he doesn't have to. Because look what, looks what happens next. Verse 17, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you have well said that you have no husband, for you have had five husbands. You've had a bunch of husbands. And the one who you now live with is not your husband. He says, in that, you have spoken truly. <laughs> Man, sometimes just not judging someone can open a door for conversation, right? He had every right to just call her out immediately. As soon as she showed up, he could have said, woman, you're living a terrible life. You had five husbands. You're living with somebody in sin. He didn't do any of that. He just sat down, even though he knew it, just started a conversation. He's trying to pique this woman's interest into asking for something, asking him about something. He just asked questions. It's great. That's Jesus' style. He just literally sits down, is himself, and starts asking questions. And then, in verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is a place where one ought to worship. And here's where we see, I think, personally, not being able to hear the connotations. It's kind of like reading a text and assuming how they said it, right? We do that all the time. I do it all the time. Somebody sends me a text, and I get frustrated because of the way I think they said it because my mind always goes negative when really they didn't mean anything like that by it. They just were saying something that was supposed to be helpful and it turned into something negative because that's how our minds work sometimes. I think she gets a little defensive here, which I would too if this guy shows up and all of a sudden he knows something about me that he shouldn't know and he calls me out for having husbands, uh, five of them, and living with somebody in sin. Like I would get a little defensive too because what happens here is she starts to have a theological debate with him. Which, if it was me, and I was Jesus, and this woman who's living in sin sat down and started having a theological debate with me, I would puff up a little bit, right? I'd be like, "You don't, you don't know who you're talking to." Like I'm, G like I am, I'm it. Like this is, this is me. I am the things that you're talking about. I wrote all this stuff. I did all this stuff. He doesn't do that. He just sits back. He just lets her kind of say what she's gonna say. She starts having this theological debate about where they should worship, because the Jews in her town, and she, it's obvious that she knows a little bit of something, right? She knows some teaching. She's definitely not looking for it. She's definitely not practicing it, but she knows something. She grew up in it, because in the northern kingdom, they still practiced uh, the Jewish heritage, but they, they only focused on the first five books of the Bible. They stopped right there, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy right, where the Jews in the southern kingdom believed in the Old Testament as a whole. So they were missing a lot. And in, uh, in that belief, they had a, their temple was on Mount, I think it's, it's G-E-R-I-Z-I-M. I'm not going to say it correctly. I told you I'm a redneck. That's fine. I'm just not going to pronounce it. I'm going to spell it for you because I can't spell, believe it or not. All right. So they believed that you worship on this mountain that was in the northern kingdom where, the, where a temple was that was destroyed, right? And in the southern kingdom, the Jews believed that the only place you could worship is the temple at Jerusalem. So here she comes into this theological debate saying, hey, 
you know, my forefather said this. You and your Jews say this. I see that you're a prophet. Though they didn't believe in any prophets past uh, the last five books of the Bible. So she's trying to figure out what's going on and she's getting defensive, which can happen anytime you sit down and start talking to somebody about stuff like this, right? We've experienced that before. Somebody gets defensive but because they start feeling guilty about something. And this is her for sure. She's got a lot to feel guilty about. And here's this prophet who knows something about her that he shouldn't know. So they're in this theological debate. And Jesus, still the ever-present example of how you ought to talk to somebody in a situation like this, says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. I'm going to hold off on that verse just for a minute. Like I said, I've, I've been kind of going all over the place the next verse. I spent a lot of time thinking about, uh, you can take that down. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, our Jeremy's son is in here working with us. And this is the first time. Is this the first time you've been in here? Yeah. Side note, uh, he's helping us today, and he's doing a fantastic job. He's helped us before when we were in the uh, big service, right? So now that we're in the studio, he's helping us again. We really appreciate him uh, coming in out of the bullpen like I have today to do this. I've there's a lot I could say about those past scriptures, right? Jesus says a lot of stuff right there. And that's one of the things I could focus an entire month's sermon on, what he said right there. But what is important to note is that she just asked him about worshiping in this temple or that temple, right? Here or there. Like this is where uh, our my father said we should worship. This is where you say, you say we should worship. What's the deal? And he dropped some knowledge on her. Right, he drops it big time. He says, "There's going to be a time where that won't matter. You can worship every day. You can worship everywhere in every moment, because I'll be living with you. I'll be in spirit." And it says one important thing there. Uh, those of you who worship uh, in spirit and in truth, throw, throw up to, um, verse twenty-four. At the end of verse twenty-four, he says, "God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit." And truth. Don't worry about it, Josh. I got ahead of you there. It's okay. Um, I want to point out one thing because I'm I really had to dive into this worship and spirit and truth because I generally know what the scripture is saying, but in order to teach it, it's a different thing. Like I in my mind, I get it, but in order to relay that to you in words that make sense, right? I had to dive into it a little more, and I was struggling with it a little bit because there's I could I could tell you so much so in so many different ways about what this means, but you know there's um like Bible verse apps and stuff that just pop up verses. Uh, I subscribe to a bunch of those. I have them in my email. They pop up on my phone. The Bible app does it. Verse of the day. This verse, it popped up on my screen, right? I mean, this is, look, this is just God working. Listen to this. Romans 12, it's not in your, don't worry about popping it up, right? Okay. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present yourself, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship right there, worshiping in spirit. Your spiritual worship is presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, right? That's your spiritual worship. And then in verse two, it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So worshiping in spirit is being a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, and worshiping in truth is searching the will of God, reading the Bible, right? Studying, learning from people that are trying to teach you things. That's the truth. Jesus is the truth. The word of God is the truth. Worshiping in spirit and in truth is being knowledgeable, knowing God. And then the uh, worshiping in spirit part is being a holy... Uh, being a, being a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, doing good. Do you see that? Worshiping in spirit and truth is knowing God and doing good. It's what we believe in. It's know God, find hope, live free, do good. 
Jesus right here is saying our cycle. He is trying to explain to her how we do our church. This is exciting to me because this is one of the first places I've seen it spelled out like this. Hey, there's going to be a time where you can worship everywhere. Here, there, at work, at home, in your car, when you're stuck in traffic. You can worship God all the time. There's not going to be a temple. Jesus says he becomes the temple. And when he's inside of you, living water flows forth. Then you can worship everywhere. And that water will surround you and go and affect other people. It's contagious. That's what worshiping in spirit and truth is. And then in verse 25, he says, she says, I know the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And then in verse 26, he says, I who you speak to, I who speak to you am he. So he's just dropped this cycle. No God, find hope, live free, do good. And she explains that she knows, she understands. There, there's going to be a guy who comes who is the Messiah. She's heard that. She knows about that. Maybe she didn't care about it. It wasn't on her radar. She's just walking up, draw some water out of a well in a space that doesn't make her uncomfortable. And Jesus sits down and says, I'm the guy. And here's what I can do for you. And we found out past this group of scriptures that she believes. He ignites her spiritual hunger. She believes. She believes that Jesus is who he says he is. And then what happens? That ripple effect. That waterfall, that river. She runs and tells all the other people about it. And they get saved too. That's what happens. When you sit down with somebody at a well and just start a conversation. And this person, like a lot of people in America, it's not even on their radar. They don't even care. Jesus is not something they wake up concerned about. But there is a desire in their heart to have that relationship. It's already built in. All you have to do is ignite the conversation, start it, and they'll want it. Okay, so I just read a bunch of verses and uh, told a really good story. And I know your question is, how exactly can this help me talk to somebody? Let me help you with that. Number one, know who you are. Know who you are. This is the number one thing, the number one thing that stops people from talking to somebody else about Jesus is that you think you're not good enough. You think you're not qualified. You think all the stuff that has happened in your life has made you into a person that couldn't possibly tell somebody else about Jesus what you did last week, what you did a year ago, the person that you've become, it stops us dead in our tracks. Can I show you something? Jesus has come, Jesus came generationally from a messed up group of people. This Samaritan woman, she talks about Jacob's well. She understands Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She knows about those guys. Those are her forefathers. Those are the people Jesus came through. Those are the people Jesus used to father the nation of Israel. Let me tell you something. Abraham was messed up. He was a good guy, but when Jesus showed up, when God showed up, an angel showed up, a messenger, and said, you're going to have a kid, and you're going to father a great nation. He laughed at him because he was 100, and his wife was barren. He laughed at God. The guy who's going to father a great nation that Jesus is going to come through laughed at God. And then he messed up and did something with a servant to have a kid because he didn't believe that Jesus could actually do it, that God could do it. Turns out his wife got pregnant anyway. God said, look, I can do it, but he laughed at him. The guy who fathered a great nation laughed at God when God said, I'm going to do something because he didn't believe that he could. And then he had a son named Isaac, who had a son named Jacob, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob was a thief. Jacob dressed up as his brother to steal his brother's birthright because he wanted it. He was the younger son. He wasn't going to get anything. Instead, he got everything. It should have been the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. It wasn't. 
It was a God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob was a thief. And instead, God wrestled with him, brought a great nation out of him, and changed his name to Israel, which means prince. Jesus came through some messed up people. David was a guy after his own heart. David, if you read his history, was messed up more than anybody. He did some terrible things. But he loved Jesus. And God used him in ways that were unimaginable. The next time you think that you are too messed up, you're too anxious, you're too fearful, you have done too much stuff, you've been abused, you're abusing. You're different. You're bullied at school. Something's going on that makes you, that keeps you from going and talking to somebody out. Jesus, let me tell you something. In your weakness, he is made strong. He is made perfect through what is wrong with you. What you perceive as a problem, he perceives as an opportunity to show his glory and power. Jacob had a favorite son named Joseph. He had a bunch of other kids too, and those kids hated Joseph. So they tried to kill him by throwing him in a pit. And he got out of that pit. God raised him up, short story, made him one of the uh, head guys in Egypt. And these brothers and their dad, who thought he was dead, had to come to them to save their lives because they were starving to death. Didn't know it was him. Short story, he saves their lives, feeds them. And when they found out it's him, he says, what you meant for evil, God used for good. All the stuff that's going on in your life that makes you feel like you are less than that, God can use that. Let him use it. What makes you weak makes him strong. When you're scared to talk to somebody, you aren't weak, you're strong because you have Jesus. Paul had all kind of stuff happening to him. Afflictions left and right. He was in prison. He was shipwrecked. He was sick. He had all kinds of stuff going on. And he said, Jesus, please take this. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you because in your weakness, I am made perfect. I am weak. I'm not good at a lot of things. I have half the talent of most of the people. John is much better at this stuff than I am. But I'm standing here today, imperfect, and Jesus is going to use that. I knew that when I was out of focus, when I couldn't figure out what was going on, when I couldn't study this word properly. And I figured, thought I was going to have a problem. Jesus is standing there saying, just do it. In your weakness, I will be made strong. Watch it happen. So the next time you think you are less than that, know who you are. You are a perfect, precious child of God. And all you have to do is what's next. First, know who you are. Second, just sit down at the well. Just sit down at the well. And I'll close with this. <laughs> if Once you know who you are and you know that all you have to do is put yourself in an uncomfortable situation, all you have to do is sit down. There are tons of people around you in your daily life, who need God, who are looking for something to fill that space and everything they're looking for is not doing it and they just don't know what the right answer is and they need you to show it to them. They need you to show it to them. And all you have to do is sit down at the well in an uncomfortable place to start a conversation. Last story and then I'll be done. I know I'm running over. I apologize. I told you I was going to get heated because this is passionate. This is something I'm really passionate about. Putting myself through school, I was I waited tables at a Chili's, right? Like a lot of people did to make money when they were going going through school. We're doing anything. It was good, easy, fast money, and I went in and went out. Like they they knew who I was. They knew I was a a Christian that I was in school uh, to be a preacher. But I didn't I didn't stand on in the middle of Chili's on a table and preach. I didn't. I was just there to to make money and get out. Little did I know. Uh, people were going to seek me out because somebody had an issue with someone close to them overdosing, and it took a while. It was like six months when I was there or a year. I've been there a long time. And I turned around one day, and she's standing right in front of me, and she's crying. And I was like, you know, 
the uh, pat on the back with the one handstand weight. You know, don't get too close. Uh, woman crying, danger, danger. You know, that's uh, that's my that's my first instinct. A woman's crying. Back up. You know, what did I do? And she told me what happened, and she said, "I don't have anybody else. You're different. Something in you is different. You don't say things. You don't run your mouth. You don't go to the places we go. And I have no one else to talk to. No one else cares." They were there for the party, but they're not there when I need them. And I said, in the words of John Maxwell, come here, I got you. I know somebody who can handle all of this. And I was able to change her life just by being there, just by sitting at the well, just by sitting down in a place that was uncomfortable, being in a place where no one else was a Christian but me, just trying to, you know, make things happen, make some money so I can pay for school. I was Jesus in a, in a place that had none. And somebody saw it. That's all you have to do is know who you are and sit down at the well. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for the opportunity to me to deliver this message. I know that I fumbled through some things, but in my weakness, you are strong. Thank you for the opportunity for me to be in this church. Thank you for the spiritual hunger and desire that you have inside of us to share that with other people. And that's all I have. It's just a raw spiritual desire to make other people live the best life they can and to show that to other people. Thank you for the opportunity to expand our church family by representing you in a place where being a Christian is not normal thing to do. Make us uncomfortable. Make us uncomfortable so we have the opportunity to show your light and your living water to someone else. Praise you. Thank you for all you've done for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.